welcome to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exercise our pop culture demons by tackling our media to-do list one week at a time. If you're here for X-Men content, that part of our lives is over. But do remember, the real X-Men are the friends we made along the way. I'm your host, Sam. And with me are my co-hosts, Andy. Hello. And Tessa. Hello. So... Because it is the first episode of 2022, it must be time for a theme episode. And if you've been listening to this podcast for any period of time, much like Beetlejuice, when you hear a joke mentioned twice, you know the third time something magical's gonna happen. We're talking about Piranha 2 today. Of all the directors to do an auteur episode 4, we are going to be talking about the wonderful world of Jim Cameron, the king of the world himself. We'll be taking a turn through his feature film filmography, focusing on three films that some of us haven't seen before. True Lies, The Abyss, and Piranha 2. First of all, we need to talk about why we picked James Cameron in 2022, because 2022 will be a legendarily easy and kind year. So we picked a legendarily easy and kind director to work with, right? Uh, I picked it because I wanted to watch Piranha 2. Oh, uh oh. But yes, Jim Cameron is notoriously easy to work with. Right, right. Can I ask what y'all's experience with James Cameron is before we get into this? Like, favorite director, someone that you just kind of know about, you've seen a couple of his movies. Like, what's kind of your thoughts on James Cameron going into this episode? My thoughts on James Cameron are that he is a uh, a massive autocratic dick to work with. Which, which is the truth, actually. He is legendarily difficult to work with and uh, is just kind of obsessed with technology. That's it. Oh, and the ocean. Prior to today, as a matter of fact, I had seen every James Cameron film except for Piranha 2. I think I've seen at this point, after rewatching The Abyss with Tessa, I believe I've seen every one except for Avatar at least twice. I saw I saw the Abyss a long time ago when I was living in Japan. I I I saw Terminator Two when I lived there too. For, as a matter of fact, because I was not allowed to go see Terminator Two in the theater because it was rated R, and that's where my parents drew the line. I saw Avatar in the theater. It was part of an Oscar showcase. They like shuffled us out of one theater and into another so we could watch it in 3D. Which, by the way was a bad experience for Avatar because this was back when the 3D technology was making everything darker. So I I don't really understand how Cameron let this go because the film is lit exactly the way it should be. And then when you throw on 3D glasses, it's too dark. So that was fascinating. Um, By the way, I saw Titanic in the theater as well. So... I am not in the bag for James Cameron. This is really more of a coincidence. And that's what I think the funny thing about doing this episode is. I I don't want my auteur achievement unlocked for James Cameron. But here we are. Oh, yeah. It's it's here because, again, James Cameron, probably one of the top worst people to work with in Hollywood. Do you all think that his obsession with technology gets in his way as a filmmaker? Yes, we. he still thinks that Avatar is relevant to pop culture and is making five of them. And we're going to talk about Avatar, but I just want to point out that he's had, what, uh, 
10 films, two of which are documentaries, in the last 40 years. <laughs> and like there four of them were in the 80s, three of them were in the 90s, and then in the 2010s we had two documentaries. Thank you, that's the word. Two documentaries and Avatar. Like this is somebody that I feel like who has made some really really good-looking films and some really great films. But it's interesting to see as a filmmaker the ways in which his own obsession and tinkering with his own art, with his own technology, has sort of led him to have these like gigantic creative blocks almost. Talking about Avatar gets at all of these things, gets at the obsession with technology and water, notoriously difficult to deal with. Somebody who, once he won the Oscar for Best once he won the Oscar for Best Picture in 1997, he didn't get a blank check. He got the whole damn bank. I have not seen Avatar, and I don't care to. I can't comment on if Avatar is good. Wow. Do you have any intention to watch Avatar ahead of the intended projected release of Avatar 2? No, why would I? Here are my thoughts on Avatar. It is a visually groundbreaking movie that I literally cannot remember any of, except for that it's the plot of Pocahontas. And there's a super crip in it. That's literally all I can remember. I've seen the movie once. I remember sitting in the movie theater and thinking, wow, there's a lot of brilliant technology in this film, but it is a very unmemorable film when it comes to things like characters, things like plot. It does rely on a very lazy idea of indigenous people, of climate change, and of disability. That's about all I really remember about it. So sure, it's groundbreaking, but I don't care about it. Also, let's not forget that I, I, I know the all the plot beats of the movie, but the indigenous people beating the uh, the uh, colonizers, that always goes well for the indigenous people afterwards. I just wanted to yell Pocahontas in space, but I don't think I will. Just very quickly then, I know you have no investment, Andy. Mm-hmm. Is Avatar 2 going to drop this year? Yes. Yes, I think it will. I think it will because Disney is done. Disney is done with James Cameron uh, and they know that they need something in December. It's really once you build an entire park within a park dedicated to the movie, you got to come through eventually. Tessa, same question. So I actually had the perfect story for this since you reminded me of it. The Avatar ride in the Animal Kingdom in Orlando is one of the best rides in all of the Disney parks. I can say that having no emotional connection to the subject material of the ride, but it does actually feel like you're flying on a giant creature and I just pretended it was a dragon. Avatar 2 will come out when it comes out. I don't have any expectation it'll come out next year. James Cameron is a liar. The end. (laughs) As Tessa pointed out, James Cameron has done a couple of documentaries related to his underwater exploits since Titanic. Uh, and since Avatar. But as far as big screen fictional films, Titanic and Avatar are the only two he's directed in the last 25 years. His other main directorial credit is one episode of the television series that he created, Dark Angel, which aired on Fox from 2000 to, I believe, 2002. It had two seasons. Andy, have you seen any of this? No. It was a huge deal when it premiered. 
because James Cameron's making a TV show. And this was what he did first after Titanic. This show gave the world Jessica Alba. Mm-hmm. Uh, she plays, so former model or current model turned actor Jessica Alba plays a genetically enhanced super soldier, very similar, I think, to Joss Whedon's Dollhouse, but much, much earlier. This takes place in a post-apocalyptic Seattle that has lived through an EMP mega bomb that has taken out all technology, and so they're, they're rebuilding in this way. It's basically another iteration of Ellen Ripley or Sarah Connor, except it's Jessica Alba. And it was set in 2019, which I think is, is pretty funny. But it was a concept that was good, but then the execution wasn't. And much like Dollhouse, it was canceled after two seasons. And that just brings us right back to Titanic, which Andy has also not seen. I've, I've seen it. I just don't care or remember any of it except for the, um, the memes. Look, my mom my mom had the two VHS set. I've seen it. I've just whatever. <laughs> Tessa, you've seen Titanic. What do you think about it? So I should preface this by saying I've only seen Titanic once, and it was because in 2012 it was the hundredth anniversary of the Titanic sinking. And to commemorate that, they decided to show Titanic in a bunch of theaters. So my roommates who love Titanic, when learning that I had never seen the film, dragged me to the movie theater to watch it. So I have seen it in a movie theater, which is probably the best way to see this movie. I don't know. Like, there are some parts of this movie that I really, really like. And I think one of the brilliant things about it was that before seeing this movie, I didn't really realize how long it took that ship to sink. Like, it actually took a very long time for the ship to go down, which... James Cameron does a very good job of amplifying the horror of that. I, I think if you look at it at from a horror film perspective, there's a lot of really good things going for that movie. But there's a lot of a lot of the class issues don't make sense. A lot of the character works work does not make sense. I honestly the only other thing I remember about that movie is how annoyed I was at Leo DiCaprio's character call, calling her by her first name all the time. He probably says her name over a hundred times in that movie. And literally nobody talks like that. Nobody refers to someone by their first name while talking to them that many times. So it's, it's mid tier. Actually, it's a pickup artist technique. Just, well, maybe that would have made the movie, maybe that would have made the movie a lot better, but I was very annoyed by that and the whole door thing. So like, there's some really good stuff in it. It's just, at, it's one of those movies where the parts don't equal a whole for me. It's definitely mid-tier. Mid-tier Cameron for me. This is, of course, the film that netted him the best picture to which he responded by getting up on stage and saying he is the king of the world. He was also, at this time, married to Linda Hamilton, I just want to point out. <laughs> Um, we'll talk about his various wives here in a minute, but he was married to Linda Hamilton from 97 to 99. But before we talk about Sarah Connor, let's stop off. So we're working backward here. So this brings us to 1994's True Lies, which is Tessa's monkey for the week. True Lies is a film that is another collaboration between James Cameron and Arnold Schwarzenegger. So essentially, this movie is uh, a Jamie Lee Curtis movie that stars two Arnolds. Tessa, what's this movie about? 
True Lies is about a spy, a secret agent for the Omega Agency, the last line of defense, which at which point I promptly just started laughing hysterically in my seat when I saw that. Harry Tasker, played by Arnold Schwarzenegger, who has a double life. He's a spy, but he's also a family man, married to Helen Tasker, played by Jamie Lee Curtis. He has a daughter, Dana, played by Elijah Dushku, and he is struggling to balance these two lives. It's a very Mr. and Mrs. Smith situation, except for Jamie Lee Curtis is not Mrs. Smith, at least not for most of the movie. And when he discovers that his wife might be having an affair, he has to misuse government resources in order to figure out what is going on to redetermine the priorities in his life. There's also a terrorist plot that he has to foil. There's a lot of threads in this movie. Not all of them are good. Also, it feels very unfortunate to mention at this point that this is also the film that Elijah Dushku, who was 12 years old when making this film, was assaulted during this film. She's talked about that in depth in interviews. So, yeah, this, is, this, this film has a lot of things that are not necessarily great about it, including things happening off camera. This movie is also a little difficult to come across because, for some reason, terrorism isn't funny anymore. Because it was in 1994. This movie plays Middle Eastern terrorism for laughs. It takes a terrorist plotting to detonate a nuclear weapon on American soil. And so there was going to be a sequel to this movie that was scrapped not too long after 9-11. So it's a, it's a weird movie to go back and revisit. I saw this movie before. You know, I saw it closer to when it came out. And we talked about this when we did the Bond podcast, too, that one of the things that Bond did well is it never directly went after the Cold War. It always approached, it approached the Soviet Union sideways through Afghanistan twice. But when Afghanistan became the main story, they went somewhere else. They went to like Azerbaijan. Mm -hmm. You know, that, Uh, that was what Bond always did. Cameron, who for some reason wanted to just take it head on. Andy, I know you have thoughts about this in the comparison to Bond. Uh, I mean, I think this is probably like, I thought this was like, oh, what if James Bond had a had a family and actually had to, to balance that? Because this is what I think of when I think of a James Bond movie. Again, I've only seen Goldeneye uh, as far as this era of James Bond. I've, I've seen Goldeneye because the video game. So I don't actually know, but there's gadgets. There's a uh, a comedically like uh, their boss has got the eye patch. Um, there, Played by you, Charlton the, Heston. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got the Q type person. You've got Tom Arnold pl- playing wonderfully the uh, the man in the chair. Yeah, I think this is the movie why people are like, oh, uh, Cameron should do a James Bond movie. I didn't ask Sam about Cameron doing Bond when I watched the first third of this movie. I actually asked about Arnold Schwarzenegger doing Bond when I watched the first part of this movie because he's giving actually a very charming performance for about the first third, especially in that scene where he's like infiltrating the, uh, I don't know, uh, where wherever he's infiltrating. He's infiltrating a party. He's trying to get some data. It doesn't really matter. He's doing cool stuff. I, I think we ultimately agreed that he couldn't do Bond because he can't get a British accent. Like, there's just no way that Arnold Schwarzenegger could. He can't could. have an American accent. He can't, he can't have an American accent. How would he ever have a British accent? But we did agree. Who was it that you said he could play, Sam? 
Jaws? Oh, no. I said that Arnold Schwarzenegger could convincingly, especially if he could do the American accent, could do Jack Reacher. When he was younger, probably. He's probably too old for it now. But there's like this hilarious scene, and I say this as someone who hates animal peril, but there's like this hilarious scene early on where he picks up two dogs <laughs> and like like just like picks up two Dobermans and like hits their heads together. And it's played very funny, and we immediately see a, a shot afterwards showing that they're fine. Nothing bad happened to them because of that. They just look very confused. But that to me, yeah, that reads like... It's very funny, but it's still very spy forward. It does have a lot of those like Bond trademarks in that way. Although it is a little bit more spoofy, especially later on when it comes to these films. Uh, I, I will say, first of all, the the title of the uh, terrorist group, Crimson Jihad, is so, so dumb because it's a an English word and then a, um, I think maybe Arabic. I, I don't, I don't know the the origin of uh, jihad as far as uh, etymology and language it belongs to. But the idea of like English word, non-English word together. Right. It just goes to show that people were not thinking in any sort of intelligent way about this kind of event. Also, uh, I, I burst out laughing every time, every time there's a specific shot that is done, especially during the, um, the more uncomfortable scenes with Arnold Schwarzenegger and then later Jamie Lee Curtis where just the light just over their eyes. Yeah. It is so funny to me as just like a thing. Like I hear the Kill Bill music when that, when that's happening. As Tessa says, the, the first act of this movie, charming is the word that you used. And I think that's a, that's a good term. I, I, Arnold Schwarzenegger is a charming person when he wants to be and and then the third act of the movie is i mean cameron and schwarzenegger know how to do action mm-hmm. I've, I've said before i don't particularly care about action sequences but this one's done really well i know a good one when i see it the problem is act two so yeah the problem with act two is that And it ruined the movie. Like, I was in this movie from, like, the very first minute. Like, I was like, okay, let's go. This is a spy movie. This is great. Arnold's doing great. Jamie Lee Curtis is doing great. There's a fantastic chase scene involving a horse going through a hotel and an elevator. Like, I was here for that. I was so there for it. And then we get bogged down in this really, really terrible, sexist, and uncomfortable plot where... Harry discovers that his wife might be having an affair and it turns we know that she's not she has been approached by Bill Bill Paxton, Paxton. Right? that's who played it is. beautifully Bill Paxton plays this sleaze ball beautifully Oh yeah you know he's hilarious but he like approaches her and is pretending to be a spy who needs her help but he's using it, he's actually just a pickup artist using it to like he's a used car salesman he's trying to get women by lying to them it's a very Barney Stinson situation but like <laughs> I even told Sarah, I was like, this is a, a Neil Patrick Harris and How I Met Your Mother level of commitment to this bit. It's true. It's true. And all that's very funny. But then the part that's just so uncomfortable to me is the ways in which Harry then misappropriates like tons and tons of government funding and assets in a way that is a huge violation of a lot of people's privacy. Like the way he does has to be illegal. And he does it so. He could. This is pre-NSA, but they also note that like 
no, the government does this all the time. Right, but it's very uncomfortable the way he uses his position to spy on her, to follow her, to kidnap her, basically, to bring her back to the the government agency. There's this really uncomfortable interrogation scene where he's trying to get the truth out of her, but he's pretending that he's, like, this dude behind a double-way mirror, and, like... She, he treats her rather horribly, and then he coerces her into potentially helping out the agency. And it's all presented like it's a bit of fun, right? Like, oh, well, she wants adventure, and he's going to give her this adventure by pretending that she's on this mission. But then they, like, force her to, like, strip for him, and, like, he kisses her without her knowing that it's him, which is definitely sexual assault. Like, there's a ton of stuff in that scene that just seemed it was boring, it made me uncomfortable, and there was a lot of ways that they could have gotten to where they wanted to go without involving any of that and so like that's the part that ruined this film for me and like you said the last act is a perfectly good action movie but i really couldn't get over that middle act right Uh, i mean what they do to queen of one piece herself jamie lee curtis it's it's really weird and before before the striptease dance which incredibly uncomfortable i even like told sarah i was like you know In a very 90s misogynistic way, what he's doing for her is very nice, though. Like, the idea of, like, oh, my wife wants to have fun. She wants a little bit of danger. I'm going to, like, set up a a spy mission for her. That idea is nice-ish. The the Boris-Natasha joke. The Boris-Natasha joke is funny. The problem is there's no consent to any of this. No, no, no. If you're going to play games are great. Games are great, but you got to get consent from everybody. So like that, that I think is my problem with this film. But, and the way that they're trying to play it for laughs, it's just like, this is aggressively not funny. Like maybe it was funny in the nineties. I don't know. I wasn't there, but it was so aggressively not funny to me. I I, I don't even think it was funny for most of it in the nineties because like Arnold Schwarzenegger is abusive towards his best friend. Like... Com- like, like even like the uh, Tom Arnold role, it's so bizarre. Like just breaking his window. I, you know, this is normally the point when we talk about something. When I, whoever is is asking the question, says, "Do we recommend this film?" We don't. Do we or or do we? No, but no, I don't. I don't, I don't recommend this film. That that was enough to absolutely turn me off the film. Like. Maybe watch, okay, if you want to watch the best part of this film, watch everything until the end of the horse chase sequence. And then just turn it off and pretend it was a and short film. John Wick 3. Yeah, and then watch John Wick 3. Yeah, they, they tie together real well. If you want to pretend this is a really wonderful short film that's sort of Bond-like, <laughs> you can do that by stopping right after the horse chase scene. Otherwise, give this movie a pass. So uh, another thing to bring up is how, uh, again, this is why it is relevant how abusive James Cameron is on set because of how, uh, you know, ab- abusive and coercive this movie is, especially towards Jamie Lee Curtis as she's like about to cry as she's doing a, a, a striptease. Like, uh, God, it is, it is massively uncomfortable. And uh, it's like, oh yeah, James Cameron acted this way behind the curtains too. So, but uh, I want to play a game of Sam's favorite game of Andy's preconceived misconceptions. Oh, yay. Because uh, there there were two in the watching of this movie. Go ahead. One, 
I was under the assumption that Quentin Tarantino wrote a bunch of this movie. Why? Because of true romance? Yes. 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 And the other one was uh, I weirdly confused Tom Arnold with Phil Hartman. He's just a simple caveman lawyer, Andy. And also, the other reason I confuse those two is because um, of the uh, jing- my lifetime watching Jingle All the Way and associating Phil Hartman and Arnold Schwarzenegger as a duo. So a, a nod to what could have been, because we got this instead of what Cameron wanted to do, which was Terminator 3. Off of the success of Judgment Day, he was immediately interested in continuing the franchise. He did succeed in his desire to work with Schwarzenegger again, of course. But just to think about what could have been. Wanted to do T3, did True Lies instead. So we go backward in time. We do hit Terminator 2 Judgment Day in 1991, which is, I mean, it's a great movie. He also, just before that, had EP'd his wife's huge, big, giant, great movie, Point Break. I'm talking Mm. about second wife, Catherine Bigelow. So what's really interesting is that True Lies is a misfire sandwiched between what are possibly seen as his two biggest films. And also was the most expensive movie of all time at that point. Well, okay, but but you've seen Terminator 2, right? Yes. Is it good? Very good. Very good. Gender essentialist, but very good. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's a white male director. Right. So, so my question is, th- this is what really bothers me. What happened? What happened? After the failure to launch of T3... He does True Lies. He does Titanic instead. Eventually, the IP does get picked up. And we have Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines, which does not involve James Cameron and is then immediately retconned by, uh, take your pick, the Sarah Connor Chronicles, a show on Fox, Terminator Salvation, starring Batman and Jai Courtney, or Terminator Genesis, where Khaleesi takes over as Sarah Connor. Take your pick. They all undo Terminator 3 and make worse versions. What about what about then uh, Terminator Dark Fate, which I liked? Well, yeah. It's, it's a good movie, and it like undoes the other T3s. Like, it's James Cameron going, wait, no, this is all wrong. That's why I didn't include it in the rant, because A, it's good, and I only had A on that list. Sorry. Which is a better sequel, Terminator 2 or Aliens? Terminator 2 is a better sequel. Explain your work. Because it is more faithful to the original. Both are obsessed with motherhood and maternity. Yes, but... I was on a podcast recently with... It was the Wild Pretty Things podcast, and one of the the hosts, because we were talking about Alien, the one by Ridley Scott, one of the co-host while talking about aliens said something about James Cameron does not understand what subtext is and I would say that's true for both of these movies yes but uh I will say uh, again the the reason why uh T2 is the better sequel is just it's the same genre it is more faithful to the original it is done by the same creative team I think that 
alone makes it the better sequel. So I'll, I'll do you one better on this one, and I'll do it by shifting backward again to The Abyss, uh, the film that immediately preceded Terminator 2. So I just want to say three things about this movie, and then I'm going to turn it over to you, Andy. Uh, the first one is The Abyss ends up being most important because it is it has been referred to as proof of concept. For Terminator 2. And so that's, you know, what's really interesting is that perhaps Terminator 2 is a better movie because he had a practice movie before it. And so that's one. The second thing is this movie was shot primarily uh, off the Cayman Islands, which is a location revisit from guess which movie. But also it is shot in a decommissioned nuclear facility in Gaffney, South Carolina. And the third fact, this film won Best Visual Effects. What'd you think, Andy? Drowning is probably my number one, like, most terrifying way to die. Um, <laughs> so you were feeling pretty tense in this movie. I, I was I was feeling very tense. Um, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, What's the overall, movie about before you get into what you thought? Uh, I... I couldn't really tell you the movie there there's a nu- there's a nuclear submarine problem then the military comes in and forces some oil rig workers to uh to go aboard the submarine and then there's aliens and weird things happen and uh this could all be hallucinations from uh from pressure sickness i mean it camera's not good with plots come on also the entire like uh weird sexist plot line of uh of the, I, I think the, the best the best ways to sum it up is the quote where uh, Ed Harris goes, I hate that. And someone responds, then why'd you marry her? Or then yeah. uh, glad, uh, bad thing you married her or something like that. I'm glad you mentioned that joke because it it's going to come back here in a minute. You know, this movie is actually very, very easy to sum up. I mean, it's essentially everything you said, but... The movie's about the power of love, you guys. Come on. I like this movie better when it was done by Michael Creighton with Sphere and later uh, the the Kristen Stewart movie, Underwater. I don't even know how to answer that. I don't have anything to say. What did, how did you feel about this movie besides the terror of drowning, which happens several times in this movie? Look, okay, clearly Cameron wants to... He, he wanted to recapture the alien success. Okay, there's... There, there's a lot of similarities between space and underwater, but also there's even a TIE fighter scene um, when they're doing the submissibles underwater. This is this was a very whatever movie. I, 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 I feel ambivalent about it. I mean, I appreciate the, the technical effects. I appreciate that Ed Harris almost got killed uh, during the filming of this movie. I don't appreciate the, the weird alien subplot. Like, I think, I think just making this a submarine movie would have made it better. Honestly. See, I liked the alien subplot because the movie was giving me real X-Files vibes for like mm. a good part of this movie. Like there was even a moment where I was like, this is like a musical cue for X-Files. Like when they first go into the submarine and you see like the little crabs crawling around on the corpse, there's like this like, I think it's a harp, like a harp or some sort of stringed instrument. And like, there's just this little like musical cue. And I was like, this is an X-Files episode. Like that's what they're doing right now. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can see that e- either way, really. I mean, 
like I said, I, I love the book Sphere much more than this movie. I also just think James Cameron is a good old journeyman filmmaker who loves technology. I think he's a he's a Zimmerman. Or not a Zimmerman. God, uh, what's the name? Back to the Future. Zemeckis. Zemeckis. There we go. When we watched the first season of The X-Files, the very first time that Mulder and Scully go up north to an icy place, there's, there's a favorite line, and it gets repeated often in this household. And, and Tessa said it to me at some point during this movie when it started to get wacky with the aliens. Ammonia-based life forms. No! No! It is one of my favorite lines from the first season. Uh, actually, it might be my favorite line from X-Files when he's like, ammonia-based life forms. And she just immediately is like, no. That is, that is the vibe of the first half of this movie. I, I really enjoy that episode of the X-Files when the, he's, he's scrambling to try to come up with an explanation, which happens a lot in this movie, right? With, with Lindsay, uh, who's played by uh, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio. And what's, what's great about her, uh, aside from everything she does in this movie, uh, there was a lot of, of drama on this movie. She and Ed Harris apparently will not talk about this movie outside of the few times that they have because as you mentioned Andy this is a really good example of Cameron at his worst as a as a director putting lo- people's lives uh, it wasn't just Ed Harris it was others who almost drowned Cameron himself almost drowned which I mean you can't really feel sorry for him but you know it, it did happen and I will say this by the way I knowing that Cameron recycles plots I am willing to bet you that Avatar 2 will recycle a large part of this plot and this will be a much better version of it. I, I think I, I've seen this movie twice now and both times I'm, I'm left thinking, wow, that, that was much better than it has any right to be. I think this is a good one. This movie has a runtime of two hours and 19 minutes and I thought, oh my God, it's just going to be a long movie underwater. I have to say, I didn't feel the timing of this movie at all. Like, every single thing that was happening on screen, I was invested in. Yeah, there were some silly parts, but, like, I I did not feel the runtime of this movie as I was watching it. I really enjoyed it. I think the ending, without giving away any spoilers, is a bit of a letdown, but I really enjoyed all of the buildup in this movie. I enjoyed a lot of the individual scene work. I do think Cameron, like you said... Andy is not, he's not a visually inventive filmmaker, but he is really good at creating some really interesting scenes, like that tell you things about the character or about what's happening. So there's a scene near the very, very beginning that sticks out to me where Ed Harris's character is angry at Lindsay, his wife, and so he throws his ring into the toilet and then he like leaves. Mm-hmm. And then he co- and then like the camera just sets there and then he comes back and fishes it out of the toilet and puts it back on. And to me, that was such a great scene because it tells you a lot about him and their relationship just in this one moment. And it's a very visually compelling scene as well. There's a couple of those in this movie that I think work pretty well. But like you said, it's not like watching. It's not like watching a filmmaker like Ridley Scott or like. Um, Alex Garland or, or somebody like that who could give you these visuals that just stick with you forever. It's good scene work, but it's not, you know, something that's going to stick with you. But I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it way more than I thought I was going to. I also really liked the character of Lindsay. 
There's another scene that sticks out to me, but I'm not going to talk about it because I don't want to spoil the film. But there's a scene with her specifically that I've been thinking about a lot in relationship there, there, with this There film. is nothing to spoil in this film. Well, there, there kind of is for mm. some people. Some of the plot beats. I will say I will uh, never forget the CPR scene. And, uh, you know, it's it's a water movie. There's going to be a CPR scene. Um, and I want to say I want just once i want a realistic cpr scene i want to hear the ribs breaking you should really watch er no 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 i i watched house the better version of er no house is not the better version of er er is so much better anyway andy you wrote arkansas represent do you want to talk about that Oh, one of the characters is wearing a University of Arkansas hat the entire movie. Yeah, I was going to say the whole movie. I thought maybe it was just going to be like a fun call out at the beginning, but whole time. I also want to say Garfield represent. Yeah. On yeah. one of the windows, there's a little Garfield suction cup. You remember those back in the 90s and the 80s? The little Garfield suction cup that you'd put everywhere on your uh, on your window? Yeah, yeah. Some, uh, some, some, some real good set dressing here. Some real good character work. Although I did think for... A little bit too long that it was Jim Beaver who was wearing the uh, University of Arkansas hat because he looked kind of like Jim Beaver. I mean, yeah, I think this movie is technically very good. It has a lot of really great scene work. It, it the acting is excellent. I was very, very good. Yes. score. Very, very good, good score. score. I also really wasn't sure any of them were gonna make it. Like there was not a lot of plot armor around these characters either. So. I thought that was quite excellently done. Like, I didn't know who was going to die or when they were going to die, that kind of thing. I was really rooting for the rat to make it, though. Oh, yeah. I, I, I went ahead and looked on uh, Does the Animal Die, actually. I really yeah. like the rat. <laughs> yeah. The Abyss was also the third and final collaboration of the result of a professional and personal marriage between James Cameron and Galen Hurd. Their second collaboration was 1986's Aliens, which we talked about, Tessa especially, previously on this podcast. This is also a great place to look for what Andy has referred to as the drama that happens on set. Michael Bean, who plays Kyle Reese in the original Terminator movie, replaces uh, an actor, James Remar, during shooting. And... This takes us back to one step further, 1984, what most people refer to as James Cameron's first movie, although it wasn't, The Terminator. This is Galen Hurd and James Cameron's first collaboration. Galen Hurd was an executive assistant to Roger Corman, who was at New World Pictures at this time. Roger Corman's important in this story because he produced the first Piranha movie. He did not produce the second Piranha movie, but his executive assistant allowed James Cameron all the success he got. I'm not going to take time to recount the story, but if you look, read the story, Cameron doesn't make it without Galen Hurd. So it's actually really fascinating kind of these ancillary roles that some people like Roger Corman play in his life and just the luck that James Cameron has to have had to get where he got. He was uninterested in the Terminator. One of the reasons Terminator 2 is better is that it's the result of a practice run. While he was making Terminator, he was thinking about aliens the whole time. He was trying to convince 
people to let him make aliens, and he couldn't on the back of Piranha 2, understandably. So he makes the Terminator instead. He grabs Lance Henriksen, who is one of the stars from Piranha 2, to be in the Terminator. He was originally going to play the Terminator before Arnold Schwarzenegger took the part. He also, around this time, wrote the screenplay for Rambo First Blood Part 2. And did either one of you know this? He cites Michael Myers in Halloween as an influence. Think about it for just a second. He doesn't have a lot of lines. He stalks. He doesn't run. Come on. That's... Yeah. Also, Lance Hendrickson was an alien. Just wanted to throw that out there in case we wanted to talk about how all these movies are connected. Not in Aliens, in Alien. Wow. Bill Bill yeah. Paxson was in Aliens, so, and Terminator. You know, it just goes to show that, that Cameron does what a lot of directors do, which is have his favorites that he likes to cast over and over again. I mean, Schwarzenegger, is Schwarzenegger who he is without James Cameron? Is James Cameron who he is without Arnold Schwarzenegger? And then you got Paxton, um, for better or for worse, you've got Linda Hamilton. And I don't mean for us, that is for better for us. For her, maybe not so much, because she had to be with James Cameron. Lance Henriksen, when he was an alien, was for Ridley Scott, not for James Cameron. I want to make that very clear. It's just interesting that he directed, that James Cameron directed the sequel to that film and then got him to be, or that he was in Piranha 2, and then he got him to be in other films as well. So let's talk about Piranha 2. Yeah, let's do it. So I didn't get to watch this one this week because I have been busy studiously writing my dissertation. Studiously you would not have liked it. Feeling guilty about writing my dissertation and, you know, crying and taking naps and all that fun stuff. Sam, you watched that. You watched this film this morning. What name works better for this movie? Piranha 2, Flying Killers? Or how it's known in America, Piranha 2, The Spawning? So this, this movie is the reason for this episode. And boy, what a, this is just a terrible, terrible movie. This is, this is bad. It's bad and it's bad. To answer your question, the Flying, uh, flying Killers is clearly the better name for the movie. This is a sequel to the first Piranha movie, which was directed by Joe Dante, who also directed Andy. Gremlins. So he passed wisely on this film, which was produced by Italian Ovidio G. Asonidas. Why is Piranha 2 so bad? Well, I'll tell you. So the story is that James Cameron was not hired to direct this film. He was hired to do the special effects for the film. The only reason why a director was hired for this film in the first place is the agreement with an American studio for this Asonidas character to be able to make the movie, but only if it had an American director attached to it. So that director was hired and then fired very quickly, and James Cameron was promoted to director. He did not realize it at the time, but he was hired so that he could later be fired for incompetence because he had never directed the movie. And then Asonidas himself could direct the film and James Cameron could not contractually get his name removed, which is exactly what happened. Cameron was fired after two and a half weeks. This is an even wackier story. So Asonidas puts together the original cut of the film. 
And there is an apocryphal story that Cameron breaks in, recuts the film, almost gets away with it, but it gets caught and undone. But what does happen is after the original release of the movie, a distributor agreed to buy the movie and hand it and all of the footage over to Cameron. So Cameron reassembles the film. He makes it at the least exploitation possible, adds in things that develop characters, reorders and sequences the film so it makes sense. It is now 20 minutes shorter as a result, which means the movie is barely an hour long. That cut was allegedly, again, allegedly released on VHS and Laserdisc, but hasn't, but hasn't survived to be transferred digitally beyond Laserdisc. However, a Japanese interest recut the film again, kept, from what I understand, kept Cameron's cut, but added the entire 20 minutes back. So now, all this exploitation exists around James Cameron's movie, and this Frankenstein director final weird Japanese cut clocks in, and I know what you're thinking, The Abyss has a director's cut. It's like almost three hours long. This quote-unquote director's cut is 94 minutes. So that's why the movie is so bad. The basic plot of the movie... At Hotel Elysium. Beautiful name. Mm-hmm. Uh, some sex divers are dead. That's, that's my notes. <laughs> that's what it says in my notes. Sex divers dead. Because, Andy, do you... Go ahead. It, I, I can't say... Go ahead. Explain the sex divers. Okay. Be okay. sure to include the, the knife. The, 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 first, the first scene, though... We hear, like, this is very much like the opening scene to Jaws, by the way. But well, yes. we hear a couple talking, and apparently the, 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 the man cannot, um, can, can, cannot uh, rise to the occasion, so to speak, on the boat because it's swaying too much, in the hotel room because it's too cold, on the beach because it's too sandy, but is somehow able to dive into a uh, the wreckage of a naval ship where they then... Both get naked via via uh, underwater Bowie knife that is a little too sparkly and clean, by the way. Uh, and then while they are attempting to spawn, some piranha spawn as well. And uh, it is not nearly as uh, as graphic as it seems. If you've seen the other piranha movies, like I have, uh, well, I mean 3D. the nudity is gratuitous. Oh yes, the, the nudity the is violence. gratuitous. There 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 are more bear breasts in this movie than there are fish that's true yeah it's it's really really weird and cameron also seems to be kind of obsessed with showing bear breasts they're in a lot of his movies i mean i haven't seen this so i have no idea but is this like a really bad film or is it like a subversive work of bad film genius Tessa, I'm glad I'm glad you I'm glad you asked because I believe that the title Piranha 2 the Spawning is in reference to how uh sexploitative this movie is and really this movie at its heart is a um crafted lovingly geniusly by uh by a work of perfection himself to show how stupid it is to have piranha that can fly while also acknowledging the previous movie where they're like they tried to make the perfect killing machine 
That's right. The piranha. And and they even go through when the, the bodies are discovered, they go through this uh this thing where it's like, is it a shark? No, it's not a shark. What about a school of barracuda? They go through a couple of different uh carnivorous fish. Uh, but never land on piranha, which I believe is the most famous of the carnivorous fishies, like beyond shark. Barracuda first, really? Yes, yes, I'm aware piranhas are, are uh, freshwater fish, and but still. Just wow, wow. The, yeah, th- this movie's awful. Uh, you can even see some of the wires with the piranhas when they're flying. This is, Andy, as you said, a sexploitation film. It is that because of producer Asinidis, Cameron is actually trying to make a movie here, and this is how I know this is true. So the, the you 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 gave us the basic shorthand for the plot of the movie, but so the movie is set up around this resort does a fish fry every year. And what they do, and so the spawning is once a year these fish hop up onto the shore to mate. And they just flap around and mate, I guess. I don't know. And then, and then so the, the, the people staying at the resort grab the fish and fry them. And that's like their big event. Now, yep. once the dead bodies are discovered, half an hour into the film, there is half an hour of this movie that is nothing but gratuitous sex. I have a feeling that's most of what got yanked out of the film by, by Cameron. So half an hour and eight. And eight breasts later. So the important thing here is that that Anne, who is the main character in the movie, is the one with the expertise. She is the scuba instructor. She is the only competent person at this resort. And she wants to cancel after finding the dead body. She wants to cancel her sessions, her diving sessions, and the fish fry. She is called crazy. And if this reminds you of Sarah Connor or Ellen Ripley, it should. And then, and then she befriends Tyler, who is this tourist who is, you know, weirdly around in all these scenes. And he eventually reveals to her, and this should remind you of Aliens, that he is a government bioscientist there because they are genetically engineering piranhas to be, as Andy says, the perfect killing machines. That's a plot from this movie. And so this comes, so there's lots of things that you see from James Cameron later. The face hugger from the aliens is this. He does this on Piranha 2 and brings it to aliens. Right. There, there's even a chest burster uh, scene where a piranha bursts out of somebody's chest. The, the spy, the narc, the Paul Reiser character, they're all there. Uh, again, Anne is like a Ripley or a Sarah Connor. And then at the end of the movie, well, we're going to blow up the piranhas. That's the solution to the movie. Let's just blow it up. Is that the conclusion of Aliens, Tessa? Isn't that what they want to do? Just blow it all up? Huh. It's like he recycled most of this movie into Aliens, which is why what I said about the Abyss and Avatar 2 will be true. It is not a subversive work. It's not good by any means. It has value in that you can see where Cameron's going. And you can understand a little bit better about how he got there now. This connects Jaws and Aliens. The next question that's written down here is, is there anything memorable from this movie? 
Yes. Sam, besides all of the boobs that Andy keeps going on and on about in this movie, which would be memorable to me personally if I had seen this movie, is there anything memorable from this movie? Yes. I have three pieces of dialogue. The first one, Andy already alluded to this. This, again, as I said, Cameron reuses things over and over again. See if you recognize this from the abyss. You know that robot? Yes, he's my husband. There you go. Came direct, that's, that's where that line from the abyss came from. And then, it, in, in a preview of Sarah Connor, there's a discussion about whether they should go through the proper channels to deal with these piranhas. And here's the line read. The proper channels! Big Sarah Connor energy. Mm-hmm. And then the third one, which is apropos of not much, but I really like it. So the, the, the director of the resort says, we have some new people at an employee meeting. Perhaps you'd like to explain about the spawning. And so Anne says, well, it's an excuse to get drunk and rowdy, basically. This sweet little fish called the Grunion swims up out of the ocean onto the beach for a moment of privacy for his mating ritual. And human beings swoop down on him, scoop him up, and fry him for dinner. To which one of the new employees responds, how do you know it's tomorrow? Anne says, it's always the first full moon after the spring equinox. But how do the fish know? And uh, never forget the beautiful line, which is hundreds of tourists chanting at the same time, we want fish. We want fish. With tiki torches. That uh, that has not aged well. I, I have to say that having never seen this film before, by your description of it, it also sounds a lot like gremlins. I'm just going to throw that out there. Like, there feels like there's some real gremlin energy here. No. Andy, this... Or Birdemic. Birdemic. 100% Birdemic. If you want a bad movie, watch Birdemic. All right. All right, kids. That is it. We're beginning 2022 by taking you through the entirety of Jim Cameron's oeuvre of films. I don't entirely know why we did this other than it was my idea. Yeah, about the the same. You better take credit for this, Sam. You better (laughs) take credit for doing this to me. You know, as I said, reluctantly, this is fulfilling a an auteur achievement, seeing all the films directed by a renowned director. I use that term loosely. Who knows what auteur project we will do next? Oh, I do. It's hard to know. Oh, I know. Do you want to say? No. No, it's going to be a surprise for everybody, but we're doing it. Okay. So. It's a female filmmaker. You mean the kind that James Cameron kept marrying? Tune in next week. Tessa and Sam will be taking the week off, and Andy will be doing hijinks with guests. We also have a lot of cool stuff coming up this year. We have Andy's also giving us a Vaporwave episode. We are going to talk about 90s movies and their soundtracks. Tessa's extremely popular romance podcast within a podcast will be back. We'll be talking Oscars. We're going to do a lot of foreign films, comedies, you name it, more music. So join us for all that this year. Send us your thoughts about the monkeys we talked about today. What pop culture you've crossed off your list lately. What auteurs we should talk about. We're going to have guest assigns episodes this year. Talk to us about things. It's 2022. 
You say nice things to us, we end up including you on the podcast. Get in. We on are the, lonely. We're, I don't know if we're on the ground floor anymore. Get on in on the second floor. What? We're on Twitter and in. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Monkey Backlog. Email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Look for new content, eventually, on monkeyoffmybacklog.com. Our theme song is Hot Shot by Scott Holmes. It can be found on scottholmesmusic.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Get that monkey off your back.